words that were written um, so many years ago, different cultures, different people, bound together in this book, the Bible. And he takes the words and the meaning behind them, and he presses them into our hearts and minds in such a way that Christians talk of the Bible speaking to us, not a literal voice, but something comes alive, something is fed, something is watered, nurtured, encouraged, something grows when we read God's word. Uh, If you've got to page 1083, I'm going to read from verse 12 of chapter 6, the bottom right-hand corner. You'll see it's headed, um, the editors of this Bible put in little headings to Uh, like lampposts along the way. And you'll see the heading here is sexual immorality. We're in a little series here looking at the four Gs. We've looked at gold, materialism, wealth, consumerism. We've looked at glory, um, ambition, drive. We've looked at uh, grog. (laughs) It's like contrivance there for the kind of drinking culture, alcohol. Uh, So prevalent, actually, uh, amongst particularly, I think, this, this city at this time. What's behind that? Today we're looking at um, girls or guys, relationships. I'm going to just go straight for the nub. There's so many things we could talk about. But I want to talk about sexual desire. Uh, What is that? Why why is that? What's it for? How do we live with the sexual desire that uh, all of us, every single one of us, if we're human with a pulse, uh, we experience? Just before I read this, um, uh, my daughter, Bex, actually, was with us just earlier on, um, and she was reminded of something that happened yesterday, uh, and th- this is kind of like a, she felt the Lord was reminding her of this picture for me and for us as we, as we sort of engage with this topic this evening. Um, uh, she was with her boyfriend, and uh, they were underneath, just standing by the car out there underneath, we've got this amazing magnolia uh, tree out in full bloom at the moment. And they were just standing there, and um, Johnny, her boyfriend, just felt a light, little, tiny little light touch on his shoulder. And his first thought was, oh, a bird's trapped on me. Like, oh. And he went to brush it off, and he realized it was still on his shoulder. It was, the, it was a beautiful petal from the magnolia. And he, and he picked it up and just looked at it. It was this beautiful. It's a, it was something that was, he thought, oh, no, oh, you know, literally, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> it wasn't. It was beautiful. And that sort of sense that, the, that it may be that you, she was sort of saying to me, you, you may feel like you're, you're, you're offering something horrible. Actually, it's good. And it, as it lands, it may be that initially, for some of us here, something what I think the Lord has given for me to share this evening may initially, oh, crap. You know, you, oh. And then I, I, I really, I'd love you to press in with the Spirit, to, to press through to this is a gift. This is a gift. This is beautiful. So let's read God's word together. We're coming in, uh, in the middle of a correspondence. One Corinthians, it's two Corinthians. It's believed there were several letters. Paul was having quite a ding-dong with this church. They're, they're pretty sassy, if I can use that phrase, to describe this church. And um, so he starts off by quoting some of the stuff that they've been throwing back at him. So verse 12, chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And Father, even now, as we, as we read this, every single one of us, conscious of our, our humanity, conscious of our flaws, our failings, Conscious, Lord, every single one of us here in this room, how we have, as the Bible says, fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, where we are tempted to receive that like crap, please, by your spirit, help us to see beauty, to see order, to see intention, to see design. And Lord, by your spirit, help us to live to your great schemes and plans and purposes for our lives. So teach us, correct us, encourage us, inspire us, Lord, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just some caveats before I begin. Absolutely no one here is without fault. I'm not standing here because I'm sort of, I've reached some kind of uh, paragon of virtue. Uh, every single one of us kind of falls short of the intention of the, the beauty, the glory of God. Uh, and whilst, from you see here uh, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, Paul writing here to the Corinthian church, sexual sin is serious, but it's by no means singled out in the list of sins that you come across in the Bible. In Galatians 5, for example, just, just before our reading in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through to 11, uh, there are a, a list of people who Paul says will not, if they, in, they, in their current state, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, there's sexual references, but there are others as well. So sexual sin is not singled out. Uh, we might be forgiven for thinking that the way in which it's kind of talked about or not talked about in the church is something unique and special. Well, not in God's eyes necessarily. Caveat number three, it is perfectly possible to live a fully human life, to flourish as a human being and be single and celibate. Jesus Christ, God in human form, but fully human, experiencing the whole range of human experiences and emotions just as we did, lived a single and celibate life. 
and was the most complete and fulfilled and satisfied and joy-filled, the most attractive human being that ever walked this earth. It is possible to live a completely fulfilled life and be single and celibate. It is not necessary to be sexually active in order to be complete as a human being. A final caveat, if and when we fall in this area, it is not an irredeemable disaster. God is in the process of restoring and of making things new. Indeed, again, just before, perhaps you should have read just the bit before. Um, look at verse 11, just before our reading. He's listed um, a whole load of uh, sinful postures. And then he said that that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is always one of hope through restoration, rebuilding, repair. Hope for every single one of us. If we're tempted to think, oh, beauty, beauty, as we look to Jesus. Two books I want to recommend. Um, uh, this one first, actually. A Better Story, recently come out uh, by Glyn Harrison. A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing. Uh, I had the privilege of being mentored by Glyn, actually. He was... Um, professor of psychiatry at Bristol University when I did my curacy uh, in a church in Bristol. And so I got to know him quite well. He's written um, The Big Ego Trip, which is the first book he's written on kind of identity and that, that whole area. Uh, and this more on to do with the whole sort of realm of human sexuality. Uh, his argument, as, a, as the title might suggest, is that as Christians, we have a better story than the so-called sexual revolution of the last 50, 60 years uh, purports to offer. Uh, you know, free sex, just no restraint, just go for it. If it feels good, do it. As long as you're not harming anyone, what's wrong? Just do it. And Harrison argues in his book that um, all the promise has not necessarily delivered. Quite a lot. He's, as I say, he's a professor of clinical psychiatry. So there's a lot of research behind his statements. Not least that, uh, interestingly, in our, in our sort of, you know, sexually liberated world, Statistically, the, the surveys are now showing that, that uh, we are having, in general culture, we're having less sex than we used to. In the 19, sort of 1960s, 70s, we were having more sex just as the sexual revolution was, was taking place than we are now. We're less happy, we're less satisfied, we're more addicted to pornography and, and related. Uh, we, you know, the surveys seem to suggest we're in a mess, even though the, the culture was saying, ah, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and Harrison sort of uh, go. He, first section is brilliant critique of how we've arrived at where we're at, and then for Christians, how we can emerge from where we are with a better story than the one that the culture around us has. I th I thoroughly recommend this book. Uh, and alongside that, similar kind of thing, Christopher West, fill these hearts. I think I've may have flagged this up before when I was speaking on this topic or similar topic before. Fill these hearts, God's sex and the universal longing. Again, three sections in this book. Uh, that we have a desire for God. We're made with desire. That's good. Uh, we have a design as male and female. That's intentional. It's not accidental. And that we are designed to know intimacy, which is just a foretaste of our destiny. We have a desire, uh, a design to reach us, our destiny, which is, uh, that's where the book really becomes evangelistic in encouraging others to get to know God in a deep and intimate and fulfilling way. Fill these hearts. When we know God, 
through uh, engaging with our sexuality, whether we're married or celibate, single, whatever our status, uh, when, we, when we are deeply in tune with our sexuality, it propels us to know God in a wonderful, wonderful way. Fill these hearts. Um, the, the PCC, uh, the leadership body, we, we set out various sort of strategic um, priorities for the year. One of the priorities for this year is that we would engage in a, in a kind of corporate activity together alongside all the other things we do. And so what we've done is ordered 50 copies of this book. Uh, it's, it's hardback and it comes from the States, so it's a bit pricey. So PCC says, no, no, okay, we'll supplement it. So these are, I don't know how much it costs, $24, $25, whatever that equates to. Um, we're selling it for five pounds. Uh, so we're going to, I think we've got, uh, I know I've got them next door, yeah, I'll bring them out at the end. Um, we've got a number of copies already. We'd love to sell these. The idea being that if as many of us as possible can read them in our accountability groups or life groups or whatever, and use this as a sort of springboard for discussion in this whole area, how we engage with our culture, how we engage with the people around us uh, in the light of this sort of sexual revolution for the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, and with all the stuff in the media at the moment, the, 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 the sexuality stuff, the gender stuff, all of that. How can we engage? We just, it's difficult to start the conversation unless we've got some kind of a common starting point. So you may not agree with everything in the book. It doesn't matter. At least we've got a sort of common starting point that we can use to develop conversations and help one another. So that's the, the book. I'd recommend both. A Better Story and Fill These Hearts. Crack on. What about this book here? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are, uh, they are kind of wrestling with, just as maybe many of us here are, wrestling with how do I live this Christian life in the culture in which I live? Uh, Paul addresses two issues in this little section that we've read. Sexual immorality and issues around the body. Those are the two, two sort of sort of frameworks or screens that he's got open on the, on the computer of his mind as he addresses them here. Sexual immorality and the body. We need to understand a little bit about Greek culture, um, uh, and particularly because Corinth in Greece, and they were heavily influenced by Platonic thinking or Greek thinking, which was essentially dualist in its, in its framework. Uh, there, was, there was sort of earth, body, material things, according to Greek thought, Platonic thought, uh, and sort of elements of Gnosticism that, that floated around the church. There's, there's kind of material, material, physical things, and then there's spiritual things. And the spiritual things were better than the material things. Gnosticism taught that you, in some sense, and Platonic thought, you had to sort of leave the kind of dirty, sullied, kind of sinful, material world in order to attain to the spiritual world. And you can see echoes of that in the, in the Corinthian spirituality. When you come later to sort of 12, 13, 14, he talks about a lot, Paul, about spiritual gifts. And it's clear, we can infer from what he says, that the Corinthians think they've already, they've already arrived in heaven. They're this kind of charismatic, ecstatic body. And Paul is trying to sort of try to simmer them down a little bit. You, you're still living here on earth, even though you've had this spiritual experience. So that's just a kind of context. So in this kind of um, body, bad, spirit, good, uh, mentality uh, leads you to one or two conclusions of how you live. Either you will become stoic and ascetic. You'll say the body is so bad, I, I'm going to beat the body, I'm going to deny the body because it's enslaving the spirit that wants to be free. So you become very sort of stoical, very disciplined, very, you know, it's kind of equivalent of a hard Brexit. You know, it's kind of like, tough. 
Or you become um, libertarian. You just say, well, it doesn't matter, because the body, the body's just, I mean, we're only in the bodies for so long, and then we've got the spirit for eternity. So let's just go for it now. Let's, let's indulge. Let's do everything in the body, because it's not going to last. So stoicism or license. And the Corinthians, by and large, are gone for license. You can see that just in the bit we, we read. Uh, Paul quotes them, verse um, 13. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. Let, let, let's, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's go for it. Let's live it up, because it's not going to last. God's going to destroy it all, and then we've got heaven. So let's just go for it. And as with the appetite for food and drink, so with sex. The Corinthians, just go for it. Go for it. Just as an aside, people sort of say, oh, you know, why, why do we read the Bible today? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we try and get in the Bible? It's so irrelevant compared to today. Are you kidding me? This, isn't that exactly the culture in which we live? In? Go for it. There's a kind of strong morality. The morality is just go for it. As long as you're not hurting anyone. In fact, it's you Christians who are immoral. You're, you're kind of restricting us and constraining us. We just want to be free to love as much as we can. What's wrong with that? So Paul is looking to uh, uh, engage with this license, this licentiousness, within a spiritual context, but rooted here on earth. You, we're still living here on earth. You, you've still got to live Christ-like lives on earth. How do we do this? You see in verse, um, uh, uh, verse 13, the end just there, just kind of as we flick the page. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Body is good. The body is created by God for him, to honor him. The body is good. So let's pay attention to how we live in it and grow in it. Verse 14, for by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will, also, he will raise us also. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Take care with how you live in the material and in the here and now for the Lord. It's an audacious theology that Paul is trying to hold together flesh and spirit, material and aesthetic. Hold it together in one because he's seen the Lord, Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And we are followers of Jesus. We, we live this embodied spiritual life. When he makes reference there in uh, um, verse 16, he's talking about a sexual act, an extreme example, if you like, a sexual act with a prostitute. But he uses that to segue into God's original design for our sexuality and our sexual desire. When he talks about it, he makes reference to um, the two becoming one flesh. Briefly, because I've spoken on this before, and you can access the talk on our, our on the media page of our website. Uh, but just as a brief reminder, there are two complementary accounts in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, two complementary accounts of creation. The first is a wide-angled lens. Uh, and there we get the God made the whole world uh, in six days, and then he made a sort of crowning glory, human beings, mankind, 
made them in his image. And the Bible tells us, Genesis 1 verse 28, that God blessed them. He bestowed his goodness, his character, his righteousness on them. And he said, first command in the Bible, this is a command, be fruitful and multiply. I don't need to explain how human beings multiply, do I? God commanded that. Be fruitful and multiply. It involves having sex, male and female together, creating life, sharing in creation. How wonderful is that? That's the, that's the kind of the, 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 the sort of wide-angle lens. Genesis 2, we come in, we zoom in. Instead of humanity, we look at the same creation account, the same God, same uh, initiation of all that we see, but through Adam and Eve. And uh, Genesis 2, 18 onwards, uh, the, the writer tells us that, um, that God says, not good for man to be alone, not good for... It's the first thing that's described as not good in creation. As he has this mandate to steward and to, to enjoy the whole of creation, not to do it on his own. And... and God says, I will make a helper, the English translates it, suitable for him. The Hebrew, the original language, is a difficult word to translate, but it, it, it means like-unlike, sort of together, both like and unlike. A helper like and unlike Adam. And so Eve is like Adam. He's a, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's another human being. She's like Adam. But she's not a man, she's a woman. She's unlike Adam. And so just as a, a dovetail joint in carpentry is actually the strongest bond, so at the very point where they are like but unlike, they are joined, they are, they are strong, they are at their strongest, where they are like unlike and connected together. They, they know that deep sense of companionship, that deep sense of belonging one to the other. And the two, uh, the writer says, will become one flesh. Talking actually not just of Adam and Eve, he, he kind of pans away. And the writer here says, and so it is that a man will leave his mom and uh, mother and father, leave home and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul picks up that, that creation design here. That is the point of our sexuality. That is why we are made like and unlike each other. That's why they're male and female. That's why, uh, and Christopher West is quite graphic about this, if not in his book, certainly when you hear him speak, um, that, that our genitalia, are, they're not just a sort of afterthought. It's not like God made our bodies. and then kind of, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking that God made our bodies and then the devil suck on the genitalia. And we say, oh, you know, we do, we're not really, you know, we don't like to sort of, we sort of dance around our sexuality and our sexual desire, and the, and the organs that are there for expressly for sex. Just, I mean, I may have said this before, but just indulge me. How many nicknames have you got or are you aware of for your elbow? It's just an elbow. What about your knee? How many, how many sort of slang words for the knee? But what about now, how many slang words for the penis or the vagina or the breasts, the mammary glands? Loads. And we all sort of slightly, we can't bring ourselves to use the terminology that God wonderfully has given to every man and every woman. 
We sort of dance around it and kind of titter. We don't really talk about it enough. By the way, can I say, the church has, is, has been guilty, in, particularly in the last, we have not been keeping up with what's been going on. And because we kind of haven't talked about it enough, I I'm, confess, and I'm, I'm sorry, we probably haven't talked about this whole area. So significant to our humanity, so significant as a signpost to our relationship with God, because we've not talked about it enough. We, by default, kind of the cloud of shame descends. Please forgive me if I have in any way colluded with a shame culture in this church such that we're not free to talk about something that God intended as not crap, but beautiful. I, I pray to God that we are able in our twos and threes and our life groups and so on as we kind of get to know one another, trust one another, uh, take risks with one another, that we are free from shame. And that we're free to delight in everything that God has given us and every way that God has made us. That's the, that's the intention of sex, two becoming one. A profound union that expresses the profound, intimate, joyful union of God and his people. It's a sign. Our, our genitalia. Our sexual desire, everything that we know and feel in this whole area is a sign for what God intends us to experience forever with him. If I, if I can just be blunt, an orgasm is just a momentary thrill that is just the merest foretaste of the ultimate deep, joy and thrill and pleasure of being known by the God who made us. Sex is a sign of what is to come. Now, it, we often sort of look to the Bible. Uh, uh, say, oh, we, what does the Bible say about Dating. What does the Bible say about romantic relationships? What does the Bible? So many things. We come with so many questions to the Bible, and we, it seems so frustrating because it's just pages and pages of sort of stuff through Leviticus about um, you know oh, all sorts of weird laws of hygiene and food, and there's nothing on the stuff that I really want to know about. But I mean, I may be oversimplifying this, but. Basically, the Bible was written and compiled and put together in a, in a betrothal culture. They, they, they didn't know of, it's a, it's a relatively or very modern phenomena in certain parts of the world. We're in that part of the world where um, we become sexually aware and sexually mature, but culturally, we don't often um, express that or have the opportunity to express that until later on. There's a gap between our sexual maturity and um, when certainly the church and, and Orthodox Christianity has taught it's appropriate to express that sexuality. So that, that becomes a real tension, a real challenge. I think I'd want to say, though, if the Bible has little to say on dating, it certainly has quite a lot to say on the kind of person who is dateable, on character and the, the, the shaping of oneself in line with God's plans and purposes for our lives. And the Bible has a lot to say about marriage. Again, not as we might conceive marriage between a man and a woman, or as many would conceive in our culture now, between a woman and a woman, or a man and a man. No, 
it, it raises the bar higher than that. Again, West, in his book, he points out that the first words of the Bible are, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. This is Adam in union with Eve. And the last words in the Bible are, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit of Jesus and the bride, his church. West says that the Bible, that, that, yes, the Bible begins with marriage and ends in marriage. And slap bang in the middle of the Bible is the Song of Songs. Have you ever read the Song of Songs? Please don't tell me the Bible doesn't have much to say about sex and erotic love and romanticism and intimacy until you've read the Song of Songs. In, in that word, there are three words used for love in that short book. It's a, it's a, it's a love song. It's, a, it's, a, it's a just overflowing with, with uh, ecstatic love, these two lovers. They sing to each other. And the, the, there are three words in the Hebrew, Daud, Raya and Ahava, if my Hebrew pronunciation has stood the test. Daud is erotic love, sensual love. Raya is the kind of talks of a soul tie, of a deep connection, companionship, a, a oneness in that sense. And Ahava speaks of, of love that expressed through will, the, the choice to love, the will to love, the determination. So erotic love, soul tie love, and the will to love. It, it's richly there, right in the center of the Bible. And all the Bible references to what we might call uh, sexual desire, sexual identity, to, to love, to romance, all of them actually point beyond the subjects to God himself. It's almost as if we, we're, we're, we're meant to recognize them amongst one another, but not as an end in themselves. Sex is not an end in itself. It's, it's a means to an end. It's, it's a way of understanding how we're ultimately to understand God, to, to fall in love with him. There's an erotic sense. To, to feel deeply connected, our soul with his soul, our spirit with his spirit. And so I have the, the, the will to live for him, to forsake all others, be faithful to him as long as I shall live. So Paul to the Corinthians, sex is not a commodity. And the body is not for self-gratification. Do you not know, verse 19, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's just radical stuff in this culture in Corinth. Radical stuff today. God intends it as a gift to us. If we will, if we will press you through, if we'll persevere, if we will receive all that he has for us. Look at uh, just on chapter 7. He's talking about marriage now. This is unbelievable for the culture back then. Heavily patriarchal society. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Everyone goes, yeah, tick. But look what he says next. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. We're not our own, male, female. We give ourselves in marriage, Paul is saying here, to the other, becoming one flesh. And in that one fleshness, we, we, we 
We become something else. We enter into something else. So precious, so precious that we dare not taint it or spoil it. Flee from sexual immorality as we hold on to what sex is intended for. It's a bit like if I had a piece of glass, pane of glass here, and a black bit of paper here. You've got the glass and the black bit of paper. But if I put the black bit of paper behind the glass and hold it up to you, it becomes a mirror. And you can see yourself in a way that you can't see yourself with the glass and you can't see yourself with the paper. But as they become, as it were, one flesh, you see. And Paul argues that sexual desire arouses in us a a sort of intimacy, a joy, a, a sort of soul satisfaction that we are all truly after, that goes beyond just linking up with a guy or a girl. And West argues in his book in particular, when we understand the point of sexual desire, the the reason why God has placed it in us, then we will begin to understand ourselves, to know ourselves, because we'll know ourselves in relation to God. We will understand. It will, as it were, make sense. So that's why Paul says, flee sexual immorality. And he uses this uh, extreme example, we might say. Do you not know that he, verse 16, who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it said the two become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So don't, don't go, as it were, don't aim for second or third or fourth best. Sexual physical unification is designed by God to be commensurate with every other form of connection. Social, moral, psychological, legal. This act of sex is so precious that that it's, if you like, it's sort of, it's encased around, it's, it's sort of protected by all these other commitments. Paul says when you, when you, in this example, when you commit yourself, to, when you have sex with a prostitute, you're, you're just, what you're doing is you, you are entering into the, the physical vulnerability. You, you remove your clothing. You are both there naked. You engage in a, a physical act. But if, if mentally there's no, no intention to commit to the partner you're having sex with, if there's no other connection, no sort of psychological, no sort of bedrock of relationship, of of knowing each other in all sorts of other ways. If it's not a a union that's recognized by community, recognized by society, then it exposes you all the more. The, the, The physical vulnerability is not shored up by the other vulnerabilities which ironically become a strength. I'll try and illustrate that, if if I may, with this, um, this tape. Paul says you, you, you bind yourself physically. And that is, that is, I'm, I'm, that's gloved my hand. <laughs> he, 
He says, but if, it, if it's with a prostitute where you have no intention of commitment, ah, there's bits of hair on my <laughs> tape. It hurts. So, so that when we come to express our sexual desire again through sexual activity, sure, it sticks, but, but it's a bit easier to peel off. And, and actually, it loses its efficacy. It loses its power. Every time we do this without the, all the other connectedness and unification, it, it just... Paul says, flee from that mentality of, of just seeing sex as a physical act. Put sex into the context in which God ordained for it to be. Because it not only affects... Sex, sex becomes weakened. It, 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 it's, it has no power. That affects us as sexual beings. And it affects society. C.S. Lewis was the one who, who um, it, it, it talked about this, he used this illustration. He said, imagine you, you entered into a society, a community, and you noticed that all around um, were billboards and advertisements with um, hamburgers, with kind of, Great big hamburgers with sort of cheese, melted cheese oozing out and a kind of little container of French fries. And they're great big, these huge hoardings. And people were sort of standing there kind of, kind of drooling at, these, at, these, at this hamburger. Now you, you, so are these guys starving? Look at, the, look at the way in which they're drooling over just a picture of a hamburger. They, 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 can't, have been eat, they can't have eaten for days or weeks. And, and if... if you as a visitor said, no, 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 they have as much, they eat three square meals a day. They eat all the time. Well, you, maybe you go to um, this sort of room and it's kind of, the, the light is low and there's some sort of, you know, throbbing, pounding music going on and there's a, there's a, there's a curtain on a stage with sort of spotlights and the curtain slowly, slowly, slowly rises and as it slowly, slowly rises and all the, all the people there are kind of Focused in, slowly rises. C.S. Lewis, he argues, he says, it, to reveal a, a, a plate with a leg of lamb. Everyone goes, yeah, 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 and the curtain up, up, up. <laughs> are these, are these guys, have, have these guys eaten at all? Oh, yeah, three square meals a day. Uh, they can eat whenever they want. Food's not a problem. C.S. Lewis said, you'd be forced to conclude that there's something seriously disordered with their appetite for food. you can make the connections with our culture today. Something so beautiful, so wonderful, something that God intended for our pleasure has so disordered us. We're all impacted, every single one of us. I'm not going to pretend that I can just cycle past advertising hoardings with a, a lady not wearing too much clothing and not be distracted by that. And, and as I've cycled past it, for that to kind of play and roll out in my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm no, I, I, there are temptations that we all face from a disordered appetite for sex through a lack of understanding, I would want to argue, on a biblical basis of why God has placed sexual desire within us. It's, it's because we've idolized sex. We've made sex not a good thing, but a God thing. We say, if I can have sex, there, there, that's it. 
I just need to have sex. As long as I have sex, then I am someone, then I belong, then I'm... And all the, th- all the things that we, we ought to, the Bible says, ought to look to God for, we look for in other things. That's what an idol is. When we look to get from something else, something that only God can give us. And as a culture, we look to sex as a God. I have Joe's permission to share this. Um, in the first few years of our marriage, when, when, we, when we first had sex, the physical act was, um, don't mishear me, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything special, to be honest. Uh, and actually, there were times when, um, you know, maybe we had too much of a sort of Hollywood image that we'd just sort of leap into bed and it would all be sort of, you know, unbelievably orgasmic for hours on end. Uh, and the reality we discovered was, was not often like that in the early years of our, our married life together. I used to play, I used to, I used to play on my mind. I used to, um, we, we struggled, if I'm honest, we struggled with the sexual element of our marriage. But here's the thing. We were connected. We took seriously our marriage vows, forsaking all others. Be faithful to her, him, as long as you both shall live. When, when through the grace of God, we were able to express our sexuality through sexual intercourse, one with the other, the connection. So the experience of sex. You see, if we'd just been cohabit- if we'd been using sex, if I'm honest, if we'd sort of said, well, we'll t- I'll try Joe out. Joe said, I'll try Tim out. Let's just see. Let's see what he's like in bed. I'm not sure our relationship would have lasted. There would have been such a vulnerability there. I, would have th- I, would have, I, I felt, I did feel exposed anyway. I, I felt kind of naked. I felt vulnerable, if I'm honest. But the beautiful thing was that because of the connection, I felt strengthened. Because I knew she wasn't going to leave me. I knew that she loved me. I knew that the connection was growing stronger. And ironically, the vulnerability that I felt was protected by the other elements of the relationship. So that in time, our, our, I, again, I hope this isn't too much information, but sex has just got better and better and better. I, well, I say that just because who else, where else do you hear that? What you hear in culture is get it now, get it now. You, you're in your 20s and you've not had sex, woo, hurry up. Because when you're 30, <laughs> and 35, and, and 40, woo. Because culture says it all goes downhill. That's the lie you're being sold. And, and if I don't say this to you, I... I'm, kind of, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable saying this, but if I don't say this to you, if I don't put this out here, if it isn't there for discussion, where else will you hear this? From, from a kind of trusted, I love you. I love you. That's why, I, that's why I, I want to communicate this to you. I want the best for you. And, and I can only offer my experience, is it, it, and, but, and of others that we've talked with and shared with, it gets better and better and better. Why? Not because I'm some kind of fantastic lover. Because... Well, because God is the amazing lover, and he's called me to join in with what he already knows. And by his grace, through, through us risking the vulnerability, we, we, we discover his strength. As we, as we hold to the preciousness of sex within covenant faithfulness. That's, that's why Paul, Paul's not trying to be a killjoy. When he says flee from sexual immorality, it's because he loves the Corinthians, and he loves us. And he wants the very best for us. So marriage and celibacy are, are disciplines. They're not easy. Neither of those states are easy. They require um, huge amounts of grace. They're channels of grace as well. Uh, a married couple 
one to the other. Single Paul goes on to say in, in chapter 7, I would that you were like me, single, he says. So I'm, I'm free from married concern. As I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming into land, but I'm sorry, I, I realize I've taken up a lot of time. Just, just kind of throw out one or two things. Um, there's a discipline for, for, for there's a discipline on, on married people. They are called to exercise restraint. If you're married, forsaking all others, no, no affairs, no marriage outside of sex. By the way, when you get married, it's not like every single member of the opposite sex suddenly becomes the most ugly thing on earth. Uh, there have been a number of times when I found, I found myself being attracted beyond that which is healthy to um, friends of ours. It's, it's, it's been, you know, again, that's been a, a, at times a difficult thing in our, in our marriage because I realized, oh, I'm, I'm beginning to have feelings for this person that is not going to be healthy if I follow that through. No, no relationships that, that have some kind of sexual ending if you're married. There's, a, there's discipline, there's restraint. If you're single, orthodox Christianity is, is celibacy. To, to prize and treasure alongside the marriage and alongside other singles, alongside the body, to, to treasure the beautiful gift that is sex. You will honor it through that discipline. So that, so that God is able to release through sex all that he wants to do within the context of covenant commitment and relationship. And I realize that's a tough call. And, and we're so prone to idolatry, all of us. Those of us who are single, we can idolatrise singleness. We say, oh, no, I, I, no I'm, I'm young, free, single. I, I, I don't want to commit. And we, we can idolatrise that, um, that state. Or we can actually idolatrise marriage. I say, oh, when I get married, all will be okay. Elaine Stork has pointed out, marriage is for better, for worse, not for worship. And, and, and marriage can be amazing or it can be awful. Marriage can heal people as, as they help to sanctify one another. They can be beautiful or actually they can destroy you. I, I bet I'm willing to believe every single one of us in this room will know people who have been or maybe are being destroyed through a really unhealthy marriage relationship. It's possible to be lonely in a marriage, like it's possible to be in a raft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and be thirsty. I know that if you're in a single right now and you've not been married, that might be hard to conceive, but I have counseled far too many couples where one or other, or ironically both, are desperately lonely because they've just not been able to find that connection that God intends. It's tough. It's tough. Whether we're, it's a discipline if we're married if we're single. And that's why Paul urges, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? As we, we're going to worship in just a minute, if I can, that's a cue for the band. Uh, we're going we're to come to God and look to God. Whatever our uh, relational status, single, married, whoever we are, wherever we are, that we bring our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit to say, come, Holy Spirit, fill me, fill us. As a, fill me as an individual, fill us as a community, that we can help one another to live this life. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus Christ, the most perfect human being who gave himself for us as a model so that we would give ourselves 
including our sexual selves, to one another in restraint where that's appropriate and then where it's also appropriate to one another in covenant, faithful marriage. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. It's a battle. It's a fight. Every single one of us, we face this fight every single day of our lives. We need one another. That's why communities like this are so precious, so specialized in, a, in, a, in an individualized culture where we meet in twos and threes, where we meet in our life groups, where we meet like this. We can encourage one another, help one another, spur one another on to live the life that God has called us to live. Let's stand together.